may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you expose us as sinners who are in desperate need of of grace. And we thank you, O God, that you then give us that precious gift of grace in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, give us the grace today then to, to receive this message, to hear it, to be impacted, transformed by it. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come this morning to the end of the, um, the first major portion of Paul's letter, <clears throat> where Paul um, engages in this devastating indictment of the whole human race. As I pointed out, he began by focusing on the Gentile world. And in Paul's day, of course, the world was neatly divided into two parts. There were Jews who were God's people, and there, were every, there was everybody else. Uh, who were not God's people, who were the pagans, the lost, the reprobate. And, um, and so that's the way they saw the world. And Paul says, it doesn't matter how you look at the world, the whole world is under sin. And Paul began by focusing on the Gentile world. Remember, he says that the wrath of God is, is being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, uh, because men suppress the truth about God. They, uh, God has revealed himself in the things that he's made, that there is a God, and God revealed himself in the conscience of men. He, he put eternity in their heart, but, but men suppress the truth because we love sin, and, and so we reject God, and reject the, we uh, exchange the truth of God for a lie, and you find in the first chapter there this spiraling uh, pattern of condemnation where men exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they exchange the glory of God for images, and God in response, gives men over. He gave them up. He gave them up to do what ought not to be done. He gave them up to, be, uh, to believe the lie. He gave them up to sexual depravity and debauchery. And we noted as we were going through that portion that the debauchery of our culture today is in fact the judgment of God being uh, revealed, the wrath of God being revealed in the world today. Now, every Jew who read chapter 1, would, um, they would just, at the end of it, look up and say, Amen. Boy, Paul, you nailed it. That is exactly what is true about the Gentile world. Uh, and, uh, but Paul is just setting them up, isn't he? Paul is just, uh, just setting them up because he's going to start in chapter 2, verse 1. And he's going to talk about the Jews in regard to, uh, to God and the wrath of God. And he's going to spend three times uh, as much ink talking about the Jewish problem as he, as he did spending talking about the Gentile problem. And so we see that Paul's primary focus in this first section where he deals with the doctrine of sin and the problem with the world, his, his indictment is primarily focused not on the pagan world out there, but on the moral people, the religious people, those who consider themselves to be the children of God. That's Paul's primary focus. You see, good church people need to hear these things because good church people tend to make the same mistakes that the Jews were making. 
The Jews believed that their ethnic identity, their their ties to Abraham, and their uh, relationship to the law of Moses, those were their their passes. That that was what uh, validated them as good people and the people of God and heirs of everlasting life. And Paul, as we've noted, Paul has just devastated uh, that belief. It's not true. God can raise up um, children from Abraham out of these stones, Jesus said. Your ethnic identity doesn't do anything for you. Your, your ethnic ties to Abraham is not going to suffice on the last day, nor is your law-keeping going to suffice. Well, Christian people can easily make the same mistakes by, by seeing themselves as, right, we're good people who are not like the wicked people out there. We're different, and we erect walls of separation between us and them. We're, we're, we're good people and our church membership and our moral standing will, will shield us in the day of, of judgment. And so we feel free. Christian people feel very free to, to, to take a stance in the world very much like the Jews in their day. A stance of we look around and we despise the world and we condemn the world and we see ourselves as very different. Christians today easily and often make that mistake. And so we, we look at the gays and the welfare queens and the, and the Democrats, uh, right? But they become those whom we are allowed to despise rather than those whom we are commanded to love in the name of Christ. If Paul is seeking to do anything in this portion of the letter, it's, it's to level the lane field before the judgment throne of God. It's to devastate religious pride. The point he's pounding home is that there is no native difference among men. All, he says, all, Jew and Greek alike, from the most godly Jew to the most reprobate Gentile, all are under sin. And so there's no room for self-righteousness, none, because there's no one who does good, no one who is righteous. I love how Paul says that. Um, no, none is righteous, and you can... You can hear someone say, what? No one? No. Not one. No one's righteous. Not in themselves. No one does good. No one seeks God. No one understands. All have become worthless. That's not Paul venting. That's Paul quoting Scripture. This is God's indictment of the human race. Uh, last week, I had some uh, wonderful responses to the, the message, um, and, and someone raised the point, well, aren't we in fact different from the world in, the, in that we're new creations, uh, we belong to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, um, and, and that of course is true. So uh, if you're a Christian, there is a difference. However, the difference is all grace. All of it is grace. And so there's... There's no, we can talk to any person on the street, any person we meet anywhere, and know that natively we are identical, and if there's any differences, because of Jesus Christ. I remember back in, when I was in seminary, uh, we went up to San Quentin Prison. Uh, uh, our president, uh, Bob Dendalk, actually flew several of us up there to um, just do some evangelism in, in uh, San Quentin, which is a high uh, security prison. This is death row guys, uh, people who are going to be there, and they're never going to get out. Well, I'm a, a Dutch dairy kid from Coopersville, um, standing in San Quentin Prison talking to serial rapists and murderers. And, and it just pressed upon me, what is the difference between Dale Van Dyke, right, and Sam here? 
who's never getting out of this place because he murdered somebody? And the answer, of course, is absolutely nothing, natively. Absolutely, fundamentally nothing. No one is righteous. If there's any difference, it's the difference caused by grace and grace alone. There's another um, response to the sermon is that, um, well, what about, you know, you say that, that we shouldn't be angry. And that's, that's right. You, you were paying attention, right? Uh, angry people are revealing that they think there's something natively different about them, that somehow they are morally superior and, and they, they're free to, to castigate and revile and despise, right, the, the schmucks out there who are making such a mess of things. That's self-righteous anger. Now, is there, isn't, there, isn't there a place for righteous anger? Isn't there a category for righteous anger? And of course there is. Um, there's, there, Jesus was righteously angry. But I think it's just helpful for us to think about, with whom was Jesus angry? Uh, Jesus was angry with the covenant community. He was, so he was angry when he overturned the tables of those who were exchanging money in the temple. He was angry with his own disciples when they refused to let the parents bring their little children to him. He was very angry. He was angry with the unbelieving towns of, of Galilee, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, who refused to believe in spite of all the miracles that he performed. But you never read of Jesus being angry with the world. So when Herod lops off the head of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and friend, we don't read about Jesus being angry about that. I would have been angry. It was, it was a debacle. John the Baptist, this godly man whom Herod actually likes, but because he had a drunken party and his wicked wife demands that she, right, she wants the head of John the Baptist, coward Herod feels, you know, he's in a corner, and so he sends the executioner, and that's how John dies. It's so pathetic. I would have been outraged. You don't hear a word of it. Jesus wasn't angry with Pilate when Pilate unjustly handed him over to be crucified, though he was perfectly innocent, and Pilate knew it. You don't read of Jesus' anger with the gross injustices of the Roman Empire, ever. Why not? Well, because Jesus came to save the world, not to condemn it. He came to save the world. And so his life was full of compassion, defined by love, and, and John says, full of grace and truth. And Jesus, of course, says to us, follow me, that our life is supposed to mimic his. Paul says, right, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So that the life of American Christians ought to be defined by the love and the compassion and the grace of Jesus. And, and if there's anger, let it be anger towards right, heretics in the, in, the, in the church. who are to, Paul's angry with heretics. Let it be angry with our own sin, right? We can, we can be angry with our own sin. But, but let's, let's stop being so angry with the world. It, they're, they're, they're just acting like the world does. That's why I've stopped listening to Fox News, partly because I go to bed earlier now, but um, I don't disagree with much of what they say. It's just that they don't have any answers. They only make me anxious, and they don't do anything to help me live a life that exudes the grace and the love of Jesus in, in a world that desperately needs it. Just think about it. 
What's going to help us become people who are actually full of grace and love and compassion in the midst of a mess of a world? Well, only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can do that. And so our text this morning is the foundation stone for that kind of life. We can't live a life of grace unless we are continually amazed and astounded by grace. And these verses are essential to that end. Paul here in 19 and 20 is summarizing and concluding God's indictment of mankind. And then he's going to launch immediately, verse 21, into the greatest exposition of the gospel in all of Scripture. Lord willing, we'll be getting into that next week. But now we're going to, today, today we're just going to bring to a conclusion Paul's indictment, God's indictment, and look specifically at the law, what the law does, what the law says, and what the law cannot do. Let's begin with what the law says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Uh, Paul clearly has in mind the Jews. They are under the law, the law of Moses, the law uh, that God gave to them. Uh, By law, Paul doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments. He means all of the Old Testament revelation that God gave uh, to the Israelites, his people. So in verses uh, 9 and and through 18, all those quotes are from, they're not from the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. They're from Psalms and other places. Uh, Paul is thinking of law in the broadest, most broad sense. And he reminds us here that that God gave that law not to the world at large. He gave it to the Israelites. They, they specifically are under the law. They specifically were constrained to keep the law. Um, God was talking to them in the law. Well, what was the law saying? What was God saying through the law? Well, the message of the law can be summarized very succinctly in this phrase, do this and live. Do this and live. Keep the law and you will live. That's exactly what Jesus tells the lawyer who comes to him in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bible, maybe turn there and we can look at that together. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. A man comes to test him. And Jesus has really striking words for him. Luke 10, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Any questions? Just love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, all your strength, all your life, never once failing, and love your neighbor exactly as, as you love yourself without ever once failing, and you will inherit eternal life. That's what Jesus says. The problem, of course, is that if you fail to keep the law, even at one point, then you're guilty of, of breaking all of it. That's what it says in James 2, verse 10. And so while the law promises life to those who obey it perfectly, it promises death to those who stumble and fail even once. And so the law is, is, um, well, it's an invitation, in a sense, to life. But it can't give life. 
The law says if you just obey me in perfection, you will inherit eternal life. But of course, you cannot obey in perfection. No one has, no one can except Jesus himself. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3.10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. If you break it once, you've lost eternal life and you receive eternal death. The soul that sins shall surely die. That's what the law says. What does the law do? Well, Paul tells us what it does, continuing, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Contrary to popular opinion, the law was not given as a way to make people shape up. That's why, that's why men make laws. So we see a behavior we don't like and we make a law forbidding that behavior. When I, when I was young, uh, there were, were no laws mandating seatbelts in cars. And so I remember riding miles uh, tucked up in the back window. Uh, if we would have hit you know, a dog ought to have been through the front in a shot, but that's just where we, it's a nice place to sleep. Now, somebody thought that was a bad idea, and so they made a law, and you can't put your kid up in the back window. Uh, there, there, there's not even shelves in the back windows anymore, but uh, you can't do that anymore. You can't smoke in public buildings anymore. Back in, in uh, when I was a kid, I remember going to my um, make profession of faith, 16 years old, and I walk into the, uh, into the consistory room there, and you could barely see the other guy at the end of the table. The, the smoke just descending. You can't do that anymore. Okay? Somebody said, that's a bad idea. We need to make a law. And they made a law and they changed behavior. And many people assume that's why God gave his laws. To reform the moral behavior of men. And of course the law has that impact somewhat. right? That um, God's law does have a restraining influence. But, but Paul sees the primary purpose of God's law not to make people better behaved. The primary purpose Paul focuses on here is to shut them up, right? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. That the primary purpose of the law here in, in Paul's mind is to reveal sin and prove guilt and silence the mouths of men. So... God gave the law, not as, a, not as a means of escape from guilt, but as a witness against us concerning our guilt. Imagine uh, that there was a, a law, it might not be that hard to imagine actually, a, a law against eating unhealthy foods. No more Twinkies. And there was a law, you can't eat unhealthy foods and you can't be overweight, right? That's the law. And so you hire a personal trainer, someone to help you with your diet. Help you exercise so that you can keep the law. But after several months, you are arrested for violating the law. And uh, you call on your personal trainer to, to come and testify to the fact that you're, you're trying very hard and you're, you're making progress. But when you called your, your trainer to come before the judge and testify on your behalf, you found out that he's actually an informer for the government. 
He's an informer. So instead of testifying to how hard you were trying, he testified to every single Dorito you ate, every forbidden cookie, piece of cake, scoop of ice cream. He had the dates. He had the amounts. It was all there in black and white. He testified to every pound you were overweight. And there was no denying any of it. And you sit there stunned because the person that you thought was helping you was actually spying on you and is now testifying against you. That's what the law does. That's exactly what the law does. You see, people easily assume the law is their friend. Um, And they'll appeal to the law. I'm a good person. Why? I don't commit adultery or murder people like others do, right? The law says thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not murder and steal. I don't rob banks. I don't do any of those things. The law is my friend. And the law says, really? Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? Ever? Have you ever been angry with someone when they cut you off on the expressway? Have you ever maybe didn't tell the whole truth on your income tax or put in a full day of of work for your employer? You see, the law testifies against you and proves that you are, in fact, not only a murderer and adulterer and a thief, but a serial murderer and adulterer and thief. It's not your friend. It proves your guilt. That's what the law was given to do. It's a witness that testifies against you before the executioner. Now, now why did God give us this? And the answer is, so that your mouth may be silenced before him. You see, the whole world is constantly making excuses for their sin. Right? There's a nonstop cacophony of, of human voices ascending into heaven as people um, try to justify their crimes and normalize their indiscretions and shift the blame to other people and to even find fault with God. Just this, this constant um, noise. Of, of men talking, justifying themselves. And God's purpose in the law is to shut it all up. You see, the way it works is, what are you going to do when your personal trainer walks in and testifies and tells the simple, pure truth about every time you violated the healthy eating law? Are you, are you going to protest? On what grounds? Are you going to say it isn't true? Well, it is true. It's absolutely true. Right? He's got the video to show the judge. And you got the Dorito bag right in this hand. It's absolutely true. Well, maybe you could protest that uh, you didn't know he was an informer, that you thought he was there to help you. Well, it's, it's utterly irrelevant. The only thing that matters, you think, the only thing that's on the table is, did you or did you not violate the law? Did you or did you not violate the law? That's all that matters. And when you realize it's all that matters, and when you realize the, the, the facts are, are the thing that God's concerned about, well, then you'll shut up. Because you don't have anything to protest. And that's why God gave the law. 
It's to unmask all the truth of our sin and to steal away every silly excuse we might come up with and to leave us with nothing to say before God except what David says in Psalm 51 verse 4 against you and you only have I sinned so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. We've got nothing. Just imagine all the excuses and self-justifying speeches King David made after he took Bathsheba to bed. Right? His conscience had to be uh, talking to him. And, uh, and David undoubtedly was responding. After all, right, he's the king. This is what kings do. Everyone in the, in, the, in the world recognizes the sovereign right of a king to take any woman he chooses. And he's vastly better than any other king he knows. I mean, the pagan kings are... They're way off the charts. And sure, it wasn't his best moment, but it's not like he made a practice of it. It was a one-time thing. And besides, there's so many terrific things that David had done for the people of God and, and for the Lord. I mean, fighting the Philistines, building up the city of Jerusalem, jabber, 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 jabber. And then God sends Nathan the prophet, and Nathan sticks his finger right in David's chest and says, you are the man. The man who is guilty, the man who deserves to die, the man who has no excuses. And shut him up. And all he could do was confess and beg for mercy. And that's what the law is meant to do. It just puts an end to all the jabbering, all the just self-justifying. You see, God does this to magnify His glory, that He is God and He alone is righteous and men are, are not. And so the Bible says, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Just shut up. Just be quiet. Morris says, the whole world, no exceptions, will be silent as it comes under God's scrutiny, knowing at last that it has nothing to say in the judgment. Every excuse, every blame shifting, every reason in your mind, it just all disappears when you stand in, front, in the presence of God and the law testifies against you. That's what the law does. And it does it to everyone. Thirdly, what the law cannot do. Verse 20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law can't do the one thing you most desperately need. You see, justification is a legal term that means to be declared righteous. It's a legal term. It happens in the courtroom. It's when the judge uh, has reviewed the, the, the evidence and, and says on the basis of the evidence, you are innocent. The law has no claim on you. You are righteous. And you are free to enjoy the benefits and the privileges of the righteous. It's a sentence that God declares. And it's the, it's the most critical, essential, necessary thing that must happen for you in order to enter into everlasting life. On the day of judgment, men and women and boys and girls will stand before the throne of God and be judged. The books will be opened. Your life will be reviewed. And you will either be sentenced 
to everlasting life as you are declared righteous, just, or you'll be sentenced to everlasting hell. And the, the, your eternal destiny, friends, hangs upon the verdict that you're going to receive on that day. What will be the verdict in your case? Will you be declared innocent and righteous and, and worthy then to enter into the gates of heaven? Or will you be de- declared guilty and be condemned and, and sentenced to eternity in hell? Because if you're found guilty, right, your, your destiny, eternal destiny, is what Jesus says is the outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth forever, forever. No second chances, no parole board, no presidential pardons, nothing but eternity without God. That's what the Bible teaches. And we are vastly closer than any of us think to that day. So nothing, you see, nothing at all is more essential, nothing is more necessary that you find some way, that we find some way to be justified, some way to be declared righteous before the throne of judgment. The question, of course, is how? And Paul is pounding home. It can't be through anything we've done. No human being, okay, are you a human being? No human being will be declared righteous by God by works of the law. No human being. I remember going to the bedside of a woman who was dying. I don't even know how they got my number. They weren't members of our church. They had gone to church years ago, and then it sort of uh, stopped doing that. And she was uh, going to surgery on Thursday. I was there on a Tuesday, and the doctors told her it was very unlikely that she would survive the surgery. And this poor woman was petrified. And I tried to talk to her about the hope that she could have by faith in Jesus Christ. And she kept going back to, I've, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And I read to her, no human being will be justified by God by the works of the law. And her husband got angry and asked me to leave. It's a hard message, but it's a desperately necessary message. Not a single human being is going to be justified on the basis of how well they did, how moral they were, how religiously devout they were, how theologically correct they were. Do you know how many people are trusting in those things? That's all law. It's all works of the law. And the law, Paul says, God says, all the law can do is reveal the truth of your failure and condemn you for it. It cannot justify you. You see, Paul wants to slam the door closed on all religious pride, on all uh, moral endeavor thinking that, we're gonna, that, that somehow we're going to gain the favor of God. He just wants to slam the door on all of it so that people realize there's one way and one way only forward. There's only one hope in all the world, and that one hope for sinners is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's not another possibility. This is it. And Paul invites us to the open door of the gospel where God gives justification as a free gift, not to those who work, but to those who believe. If you have your Bible there in Romans chapter 3, let's just read 21 
and following. Romans 3, 21. Three twenty one, but now, after he's just slammed the door on any hope of human merit, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, not through the law, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul will say in Romans 8, 3, what the law could not do, justify you, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's the redemption. As Jesus died on that cross bearing our sin, he offered us the the obedience of his life to be our righteousness, to be received as a gift. And on that basis and that basis alone, sinners can be justified. The worst sinners can be justified. Every sinner can be justified. You will not meet a man or woman uh, that is unable to be justified by the righteousness of God that's given as a free gift by grace. Now, what difference should this make? Let me just wrap up with a couple things. First, this gospel, this, these truths decimate human pride. You cannot be a proud Christian, not if you understand the gospel. It decimates human pride. We are no different than than every Gentile, every pagan. We are natively no different. The only difference is grace, and the grace is freely given to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's There's just no room for pride. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, right? My richest gain, count but loss, poor contempt on all my pride. How could we be proud? We just, it's so offensive. It's so out of line with the gospel. If we take this to heart, it frees us to be humble, happy people. People who are alive to Jesus Christ. People who find that Jesus is my life. I don't have any hope other than Jesus. There's no hope in my upbringing. There's no hope in my theology. There's no hope in my, in my uh, experiences, in my, um, in my ministry. There's, there's no hope in any of it for, self, for justification. Nothing. My hope is Jesus Christ. And that's it. And that's enough. You see, and and when you have that conviction, that makes you love Jesus. That makes you love Jesus. It's easy not to love Jesus as we get just busy with our life and busy with our Christian life and and we forget that Christ is our life. He's our hope. To be a Christian is to be alive in Him and to live for Him. This this will give us a life of assurance and, and hope and peace. There's so many Christians who just aren't sure 
When I die, will I go to heaven? When I die, will I, am I really saved? Am I really forgiven? I look at my life and I see so much sin, so much brokenness and failure. How can I know? Well, you can know because the gospel says to you, yeah, by the works of the law, you're not going to make it. So stop looking there. Look to Christ. Look to the gift of free grace. Receive it for yourself. Yes, you are a great sinner, but Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And you can have absolute and full assurance by banding the law, by holding on to Jesus Christ. Full assurance and full hope and full peace. I want to just quickly, young people here who are thinking about making profession of faith and you're resisting because you just, you see the sin in your life and you realize you're just not good enough or that's what you think. I'm not good enough. Yes, that's exactly right. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. That's law talking to you. The gospel invites you young people to say, I'm not good enough. But Jesus is. Jesus is sufficient for a sinner like me. That's a profession of faith. And if you've not yet done that, I would plead with you to do so. What are you waiting for? Christ is all you'll need. You see, friends, the gospel really does have the power to radically transform our life. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing this gospel so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray that God frees us from being angry people and transforms us into hopeful people. People whose lives exude the grace and the love and the peace that come through Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, I just thank you for your law that, that destroys our pride, that cuts off any attempt to rescue ourselves, to save ourselves, to better ourselves in our strength and our power. Um, the law that, that condemns us for our self righteousness and makes us like David to put away all our justifications, all our rationalizations, all of our excuses. It just all gets thrown into the garbage bin where it belongs and we are left with nothing but a, a cry for mercy and, and grace. Father, I thank you that you glorify yourself by closing the mouths of, of men. And that you glorify yourself then by leading us to the gospel. Where you show that you are not only a God of holiness, but a God of infinite grace and, and that anyone can come. Anyone who is willing to confess their sin, to stop making excuses. And Father, the door is open. And we can enter in to everlasting life by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that if there be anyone here this morning who's never done that, I pray that you would lead them through that door today. And Lord, maybe some of us did it a long time ago, but we've been, we've been striving hard and, and uh, living by the law, and we've not been living by grace. And we need just to hear the gospel again, and we've become angry, bitter, self-righteous people.
And we need to hear the gospel again. Father, please, don't let this precious message, this wonderful truth, just go in one ear and out the other. But let it take root and grow and bear fruit. The fruits of hope and joy and peace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and and celebrate what God has done for us in Christ at Calvary. to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.